Volume 1, Chapter 2 Thomas Wingfold Curate by George MacDonald This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thomas Wingfold The morning, whose afternoon was thus stormy, had been fine, and the curate went out for a walk. Had it been just as stormy, however, he would have gone all the same. Not that he was a great walker, or indeed fond of exercise of any sort, and his walking, as an Irishman might say, was half sitting on stiles and stones and fallen trees. He was not in bad health, he was not lazy or given to self-preservation, but he had little impulse to activity of any sort. The springs in his well of life did not seem to flow quite fast enough. He strolled through Osterfield Park and down the deep descent to the river, where, chilly as it was, he seated himself upon a large stone on the bank and knew that he was there and that he had to answer to Thomas Wingfold. But why he was there and why he was not called something else he did not know. On each side of the stream rose a steeply sloping bank on which grew many fern bushes, now half withered, and the sunlight upon them this November morning seemed as cold as the wind that blew about their golden and green fronds. Over a rocky bottom the spring went talking rather than singing, down the valley toward the town, where it seemed to linger a moment to embrace the old abbey church before it set out on its leisurely slide through the low level to the sea. Its talk was chilly, and its ripples which came half from the obstructions in its channel below and half from the wind that ruffled it above were not smiles, but wrinkles rather, even in the sunshine. Thomas felt cold himself, but the cold was of the sort that comes from the look rather than the feel of things. He did not, however, care much about how he felt, not enough, certainly, to have made him put on a greatcoat. He was not deeply interested in himself. With his stick, a very ordinary bit of oak, he kept knocking pebbles into the water and listlessly watching them splash. The wind blew, the sun shone, the water ran, the ferns waved, the clouds went drifting over his head, but he never looked up or took any notice of the things of Mother Nature at her housework. Everything seemed to him to be doing only what it had got to do, because it had got it to do, and not because it cared about it or had any end in doing it. For he, like every other man, could read nature only by his own lamp, and this was very much how he had hitherto responded to the demands made upon him. His life had not been a very interesting one. Although early passages in it had been painful, he had done fairly well at Oxford. It had been expected of him, and he had answered expectation. He had not distinguished himself, nor cared to do so. He had known from the first that he was intended for the church, and had not objected, but received it as his destiny, 
and even in dim obedience kept before his mental vision the necessity of yielding to the heights and hollows of the mould into which he was being thrust but he had taken no great interest in the matter the church was to him an ancient institution of such approved respectability that it was able to communicate it possessing emoluments and requiring observances he had entered her service she was his mistress and in return for the narrow shelter humble fare and not quite too shabby garments she allotted him he would perform her hests in the spirit of a servant who abideth not in the house for ever he was now six-and-twenty years of age and had never dreamed of marriage or even been troubled with the thought of its unattainable remoteness he did not philosophize much upon life or his position in it taking everything with a cold hopeless kind of acceptance and laying no claim to courage devotion or even bare suffering he had a certain dull prejudice in favour of honesty would not have told the shadow of a lie to be made archbishop of canterbury and yet was so uninstructed in the things that constitute practical honesty that some of his opinions would have considerably astonished st paul he liked reading the prayers for the making of them vocal in the church was pleasant to him and he had a not unmusical voice he visited the sick with some repugnance it is true but without delay and spoke to them such religious commonplaces as occurred to him depending mainly on the prayers belonging to their condition for the right performance of his office he never thought about being a gentleman but always behaved like one i suspect that at this time there lay somewhere in his mind keeping generally well out of sight however that is below the skin of his consciousness the unacknowledged feeling that he had been hardly dealt with but at no time even when it rose plainest would he have dared to add by providence have the temptation come he would have banished it and the feeling altogether he did not read much browsed over his newspaper at breakfast with a polite courtesy sufficient to season the loneliness of his slice of fried bacon and took more interest in some of the naval intelligence than in anything else indeed it would have been difficult for himself even to say in what he did take a large interest when leisure awoke a question as to how he should employ it he would generally take up his horace and read aloud one of his more mournful odes with such attention to the rhythm i must add as although plentiful enough among scholars in respect of the dead letter is rarely found in them with respect of the living vocal utterance nor had he now sat long upon his stone heedless of the world's preparations for winter before he began repeating to himself the poet's aquamum memento rebus in artis which he had been trying much 
but with small success to reproduce in similar English cadences, moved thereto in part by the success of Tennyson in his O oh, mighty-mouthed inventor of harmonies, a thing as yet alone in the language so far as I know. It was perhaps a little strange that the curate would draw the strength of which he was most conscious from the pages of a poet whose hereafter was chiefly serviceable to him. In virtue of its unsubstantiality and poverty, the dreamlike thinness of its reality, in enhancing the pleasures of the world of sun and air, cooling shade and songful streams, the world of wine and jest, of forms that melted more slowly from encircling arms and eyes that did not so swiftly fade and vanish in the distance. Yet when one reflects but for a moment on the poverty-stricken expectations of Christians from their hereafter, I cease to wonder at Wingfold. For human sympathy is lovely and pleasant, and if a Christian priest and a pagan poet feel much in the same tone concerning the affairs of a universe, why should they not comfort each other by sitting down together in the dust? No hair it boots thee whether from Inachus ancient descended o'er of the poorest born thy being drags all bare and roofless victim the same to the heartless orcus all are on one road driven for each of us the urn is tossed and later or earlier the lot will drop and all be sentenced into the boat of eternal exile having thus far succeeded with these two stanzas, Wingfold rose, a little pleased with himself, and climbed the bank above him, wading through mingled sun and wind and ferns, so careless of their shivering beauty and their coming exile, that a watcher might have said the prospect of one day leaving behind him the shows of this upper world could have no part in the curate's sympathy with Horace. End of chapter 2, recording by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois.